podcast is part of the 80s Ruled Network. Visit the 80s Ruled on Facebook for more 1980s awesomeness. R.A. Salvatore. I'm good. I don't know about you. <laughs> hey, welcome back to another episode of 1980s Now, a weekly examination of the importance of 1980s pop culture and its influence today. My name's Will, and joining me as always are my friends and co-hosts, Ray and Kat. Hello there, podcast award nominees. Oh. Yes. Hello, everybody. Hello, yes. And she has her pinky in the air when she's saying that. I don't know. It's very hoity-toity. Yeah. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So yeah, we'll get to that in just a moment. But on today's show, just to let you know, we're going to be speaking with the legendary fantasy author R.A. Salvatore, who uh, introduced us to his now iconic character Drist or Drizd or Drizdit. <laughs> we'll have to ask him about that. Come on, <laughs> get it right. And his first, no- he says, "Get it right." You don't even know how to say. It. He's just decided he knows. Oh no, no, I know how to say it, but I know how I like to say it. It's not brisk. It's not brisk. Yes, <laughs> but of course, Drist was appeared uh, in it. In uh, R.A. Salvatore's first novel, The Crystal Shard, which was published in 1988. Uh, since Ooh. then, of course, he sold more than 15 million copies of his books alone in the U.S. alone, and 22 have been New York Times bestsellers. So we're excited to talk about Tim about lots of things. But before we move on with the show, yeah, hey, it's official. 1980s <laughs> now is now a finalist for the 2021 TV f- and Film Podcast Award. So thanks to everybody who nominated us. As they say, it's an honor just to be nominated, right? What? No, f*** that. (laughs) I want to win. It's a bigger honor. It's a bigger honor. (laughs) Right. Don't honor me. Just give me my win. (laughs) I was wondering, yeah, what do you win if you win? Well, there is a true, yeah, there is actually a physical award. Ooh. But of course, you know, we'll have the bragging rights, and that's what's most important, to be able to tell everybody (laughs) we're a a winner, mom. (laughs) Yes, The uh, winner will be announced on September 30th during the online awards ceremony. Mm-hmm. All right. Hey, let's get caught up on 1980s news. Hey, in 1980s news this week, we heard a new version of Metallica's Nothing Else Matters in the film Jungle Cruise. Of course, the song was released in 1992, but it was recorded by one of the greatest bands to emerge from the 1980s, Metallica. Their new version is actually featured twice in the film, and I guess no spoilers, but it, uh, you know, the theme of it is tied to a certain storyline, I guess you'd say. Did you guys have a chance to see the film? Oh, yeah, absolutely. It's got the, it's got the rock in it. Come yeah, on. Right. I did not run out yet to see it, but I, I'm yeah. sure I'll. So did you like the film, right? I did. Yeah. I find it very family-friendly. So I was able to watch all my kids. Mm-hmm. It's right. basically a B version of The Mummy and mm. Pirates of the Caribbean, but I liked it. Yeah. Would I watch it again without my kids? No, but I, I, I did enjoy <laughs> yeah. the movie, so. Yeah, I enjoyed it too. I'd say the same thing. It was There was a lot of similarities to The Mummy, to Pirates of the Caribbean. There were a few homages that I think were straight up Raiders of the Lost Ark, some of the lines, yeah, some of the- Absolutely. Things. But in that sense, oh. it was fun. It was fun like those films. Regarding the song, uh, Metallica said that it was an honor to be to work with renowned legendary composer James Newton Howard as we reimagined the song by performing his arrangement and creating a rendition we'd like to think f- is a fit for an excursion through the Amazon. 
It turns out that um, they believe that the reason why they were able to do this is because Sean Bailey, who's a Disney Disney production president, is a lifelong rock fan and just a huge fan of Metallica and had been looking for some time to get uh, the opportunity to work together with the band. I was wondering if you recognized it when you were watching the film. Yeah, I did. The second I heard it, I I noticed it. Mm -hmm. I noticed it right away, but um, yeah, they could have picked a a better Metallica song. That's Yeah, I thought it would. I thought it'd be, maybe instead it was that song, what's that song? Darkness uh, covering me. Uh, One, you know what? (laughs) Give me anything from the first four albums. I'd been much happier, but you know what? It's it's cool. Uh, I actually like, this version better hmm. than oh. the version from the album. So yeah. interesting. Did you know Metallica, a Metallica song was going to be in the movie, both of you ahead of time? No. You okay. know, I had read that it was, and then I mm-hmm. forgot. And then the music, mm-hmm. and the, it's the first song you hear in the beginning of the film. I okay. didn't recognize it. And my wife started mm-hmm. shouting, it's Metallica. It's Metallica. <laughs> wow. Which like stunned me because I didn't know she was that familiar with Metallica's catalog, let alone to recognize it in a new acoustic version that- uh, Man, that, that's a big song. I, mean, I, I would have needed somebody to point it out for me too. I never would have uh, recognized it on my own. So thinking about this song, which features this classic, uh, a rock song from a heavy metal band from the 1980s, and the fact that it actually stars The Rock, as Ray pointed out, it is time for us to play- I want to rock! I've got, uh, I'm going to give you 30 seconds and either you can participate in in this regard. I'm going to give you 30 seconds. I'm going to give you a song and a band. You tell me which horror movie from the 1980s the uh, song was featured in. Okay. Ray's so excited. I am. He's like, can't contain himself. 30 seconds on the clock, please. All right, let's go. Who Made Who by ACDC. Maximum Overdrive. No more Mr. Nice Guy, Megadeth. Uh, shocker. He's back. The man behind the mask, Alex Cooper. Friday the 13th. Save Our Souls, Motley Crue. Oh, no. <laughs> uh, trick or Treat? Damn it. Dream Warriors, Duckin'. That's uh, the Freddy Krueger thing, Nightmare on Elm Street. Give that to Wow. Me. I maybe could have guessed that one if I'd thought about it for five minutes. <laughs> yeah, what was the one I missed? Motley Crue, Save Our Souls, is from a 1985 Italian horror film called Demons. I've never <laughs> I've heard of it. I've seen that. You have? have. I've seen that. I've seen there that. You go. It was a, a film directed by and co-written by Lamberto Bava. I like when the games are something I actually know. <laughs> that was super fun to watch, I just got to <laughs> say. <laughs> It looked like he was going to get a cash prize if he got it right. Yeah, this is something I could actually win. (laughs) All right. So speaking of rock legends from the 1980s and other 1980s news, Vince Neil returns to the stage after his thwarted festival performance. And this story comes to us via Loudwire. Of course, Ray has been waiting with bated breath for, I don't know, two years now to be able to see this concert that featured Def Leppard, Motley Crue, and a number of other rock legends from the 1980s. We were concerned, though, after a, a recent performance at Iowa's Boone River Valley Festival on May 29th, where Neil struggled to sing Motley Crue's Girls, Girls, Girls before finally walking off stage, reportedly mm-hmm. telling the audience, my f-ing voice is gone. And rumors started flying. Uh, fellow rockers started expressing concern. It wasn't certain that he would actually be able to return to the stage, certainly not for this upcoming tour. Oh, boy. I have no doubt that he'll be ready for the tour yep. because he's never sounded good live, mm. so it doesn't matter. No. <laughs> he's never sounded good live. No, he's not a good live <laughs> performer. He's great in the studio, mm. but you know what? Get your 
ass out there and just give me something, and I'm happy with that. The last time I saw him, he sucked ass. I don't oh, care. No. Is, he, is he trying? It's to, Molly Crew. Is the difference maybe he's trying to fill the stadium with his voice, so he's throwing it out versus being in a small recording studio? No, no. Hmm. Even in his twenties, he yep. sucks live. Huh. He's wow. just not a good live singer. He's just not good at it. I'm just curious. Huh. But yep. he's Vince Neil. <laughs> I will say the performance was not great. Mm-hmm. Even by his standards, it wasn't great. Oh. But you know what? He got back out there. He's back on the horse. Let's get yep. this rolling. Let's do it. Rock radio personality Eddie Trunk shared video clips that showed Neil singing uh, strong at a closed to the public event at Aust- in Austin, Texas on August 5th. He was also not the only uh, famous singer there because uh, Sammy Hagar joined in also. <laughs> Dude, I'll tell you right yeah. now, the last <laughs> guy I want there yeah. when I'm having trouble singing oh. is Sammy Hagar. <laughs> yeah. That dude is as good yeah. as ever. Yeah. So like the last guy I want to have to come back and sing with <laughs> is, is Sammy Hagar. Come on, man. That's oh. harsh. Yeah. But you know what? Vince did it. So. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, he did uh, sing uh, Dr. Feelgood and uh, Looks That Kill. At least that's what we saw in the video. And Hagar actually yep. performed Pound Cake. It looks like they're on schedule to get back on tour. Let's see. And I will yeah. say that uh, Vince looked like he actually has lost a little weight. Yeah, really? Yeah. yeah, he did look like he's lost a little weight. <laughs> oh. My uh, costume for this um, Halloween season coming up is yep. Vince Neil. Is it? So I got I to gotta keep my weight about the same as him. So. I see. So now you got to do a few <laughs> sit-ups or, or he's meeting you where you are maybe. Hmm. Yeah, I think he's down to where I'm at right now. Right. So if okay. he loses any more weight, <laughs> yeah. then I actually got to do some sit-ups. So yeah. this is gonna be fun I need to him watch. to just hang where he is. Mm-hmm. In other 1980s rock news, boy, oh boy, look at this. Guns N' Roses' Sweet Child of Mine surpasses 1 billion Spotify streams. Wow. That's well-deserved. Yeah. That song's amazing. So the song first yeah. appeared on Guns N' Roses' debut <laughs> album, Appetite for Destruction, which came out on July 21st, 1987. At that time, the album barely dented the uh, Billboard 200, but it gradually gained momentum over the next year and finally reached number one on the album charts in August of 1988, mm-hmm. Appetite for Destruction has since sold over 18 million copies. Yeah, I'm a fan. I like that song. That's a good song. Yeah. I mean, most of the songs on Appetite are, are pretty good. Pretty good. Mm-hmm. Every song <laughs> on that album is amazing. Oh, That's God, one of the greatest go. albums ever recorded. Oh, wow. But, huh? uh, yeah, a, a billion downloads <laughs> is amazing. Yeah, apparently their video for Sweet Child of Mine was it last year? Mm-hmm. Surpassed a billion views. Right, in 2019. You're right. It was the first 1980s video yes. to surpass one mm-hmm. billion views. And I think we talked mm-hmm. about it at the time that that happened. And I was thinking it's interesting because that video, it's you know, in black and white, and it mm-hmm. captures the band's girlfriends at the time. Mm-hmm. And it became a huge hit. And of course, the song itself also was about uh, Rose's, Axl Rose's then-girlfriend, Erin Everly, to whom he got, he was married for a brief time, just a year. And I was thinking, oh. what is it like to have like a, a relationship from your youth captured in a video that's watched a billion times is still available wow. on the internet? It's got to be bizarre. <laughs> that that must be very strange. <laughs> I see. I see a prom picture my mom's got in her house of you know me in high school. I'm like, oh wow, this is a weird, <laughs> trippy, surreal kind of thing. You know, you can kind of remember that moment and how it felt, and but now it's you know thirty mm-hmm. years later. It's very bizarre. And yep. I, I don't think a dozen people have seen that photo. I can't imagine a billion. <laughs> now, just like Vince Neil and Motley Crue, um, Guns and Roses is actually on tour. Right now, so fans can see them perform Sweet Child of Mine during their 2020 tour, which actually 
postponed because of the pandemic. Uh, mm-hmm. And just this Friday, the band released a new song titled Absurd, which is the first track to feature Rose, Slash, and Duff since their 1994 rendition of the Rolling Stones' Sympathy for the Devil. I was not a huge fan of Guns no. N' Roses. No. But at that point in time in high school, I had a crush on somebody who mm. was oh, a huge mm. fan. And I think I even went to a school dance because I knew he was going to be there. Oh. So what ah. would have been the ballad from that? Well, I that bet. would be a sweet child of yeah. mine. And mm-hmm. he was probably out on a dance floor doing the serpentine. <laughs> <laughs> And and Kat was getting hypnotized like a snake charmer. It was a reverse snake charmer. Absolutely. That was the move back then. Mm -hmm. Oh, man. Guns N' Roses came out. You just did the serpentine dance. And you could hypnotize anyone. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Okay, so there was no slow dance song? Because I don't think Sweet Child of Mine counts as a slow dance I think that was slow. November Rain came out later. That was in the early 90s. Sweet Child of Mine is slow as crap. Come on. What? What? Are we talking about the same song? <laughs> Sing it for us, Ray. She's got a smile that seems to me reminds me of cool. children. Yeah. That is a slow <laughs> song, man. Come on. Oh, yeah. no. But it's, it's kind of middling there. It's, yeah. it's kind of. Right. No, like, no, it's not. Cat has it. Cat it's one. straight up ballad. You know. Oh, man. It's a, it's a ballad. Come on. Mm-hmm. We need an episode about how to distinguish between mm-hmm. a slow dance ballad. We're going to count the beats per minute. Oh, yeah, my gosh. <laughs> now, what are we going to see is if Ray can dance slow to it. We'll get a woman in there. All right. As, as long as I can do the serpentine dance, we're okay. <laughs> woman gets all googly-eyed. <laughs> so did you and this uh, guy ever uh, date? No, but I taught him how to drive stick. Hmm. Oh, is that, that's not yeah. a euphemism though, right? Oh dear. I taught him how to drive a standard shift car is what I did. And that's not a, that's not a more fancy euphemism, is it? To shake off the people that were on to you about your euphemism? <laughs> well, no. maybe this can add to it is I forgot to have no. him take off the emergency brake and I didn't realize. So oh. we almost burned that out. Now, uh, yeah. Was it because you were distracted because you still had feelings for him? I was distracted. Okay. I definitely was distracted. Were all these things just a move to try to date him? Um, yeah, I guess I was hopeful. It never happened. I find it hard to believe you didn't have friends or boyfriends. This is shocking to me. All right. Whatever. It's not that I didn't have friends, but I, no, I, okay. boyfriends mm. didn't happen until later. That's okay. Another cat 1980s news. <laughs> Another what? cat news. Joining <laughs> us now is her the, her crush from, from high school. Oh, my God. Uh, that would be awesome. Oh, oh no. <laughs> All right. Well, no. All right, instead of that, we'll do this. Hey, Cobra Kai season four has gotten a trailer. Yes. It's only about 30 seconds long, but it's packed with so much goodness. So much Cobra Kai goodness. Have you guys been able to check it out? I love it. Yep. I didn't think this trailer was as good as past trailers, but sure. it was still all right. It's a teaser, yep. as they say. I am so ready. Well, the the end of the trailer reveals that we're going to have to wait until December to see it, but that's not too long from now. That's, that's so far away. It's a little too long. Now, most of the 30-second trailer plays off plays a, like a commercial for the yes. All-Valley Karate Tournament, you know, including the deep voice guy that we would... He sounds <laughs> not unlike the deep voice guy we would hear in the 1980s, you know, the movie trailer sort of guy. Mm-hmm. But there's mm-hmm. a quick uh, montage of images towards the end of it. That within like a mm-hmm. second, they give you all these mm-hmm. different little clips. Mm-hmm. I noticed a couple things, not a whole lot that I wanted to point out that I thought were cool. One, Johnny's back in black. Yes. You know, he. Mm-hmm. we know that he's now teamed up with Daniel to mm-hmm. compete against Crease. Uh, we know, we mm-hmm. also know that Terry Silver is in the, in the wings, but he's wearing black. 
like Cobra Kai, I don't think Eagle Fang's colors were black. Well, it's black and red, I think. So. Hmm. Yeah, did they have anything more than a t-shirt? That's true. Yeah. Well, you know what? Um, he could go back and get Cobra Kai back in this season. Yeah. We don't you're know. Right. You're right. Mm-hmm. If he, especially if at the end they, they defeat, because the, the, the bargain with Kreese was he would leave town. Mm-hmm. Uh, if if they defeat him, I believe that was the deal, right? Something like mm. that. The other thing is, is that it seems you know again, I, I'm I'm trying to manage my expectations because there was a couple of times in seasons one, two, and three where we thought Johnny and Daniel were going to make amends and team up, maybe, and then it always fell apart. Yes, as early as the first season, we had that moment. But in this little flash of a few different images, we do see Daniel and Johnny fist bump. So it seems like you know maybe finally they're putting that 35 year uh, rivalry to rest. Yeah, I think this is a season where everything comes together and now they're mm-hmm. a team. Yeah. But you know, next season is going to fall apart, so. Mm, yeah. <laughs> but you know what? For now, I'm okay yeah. with them teaming up. So right. We're hopeful, sure. I'm totally on board with it. This is like when they're in the car together mm-hmm. yeah. and you got that tango and cash moment. This is um this is that I think this whole season is going to be that tango and cash moment. I think it's going to be awesome. That's you too. Oh. The two of them. Oh, absolutely. Mm. That's that's me and Will in the car together. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Especially if I'm driving. I was going to say yeah, who's driving? That's exactly my question. Will Will does not like to ride in the car with me. <laughs> you know, I think I said this to Ray, and this is the God's honest truth. I probably would be <laughs> troubled by driving with Ray if not for my mom. Because my mom, especially when I was younger, scares me driving. This is true. That driving in the front seat, I had to make peace with dying. So it was a good thing. (laughs) I knew that we could go at any moment. So instead of fighting and grabbing onto things and holding on to to life or saying, hey, look out for that, I just went limp and was like, hey, if if I'm going to die, I'm going to die. The the best thing Will said when we were in a car together, he goes, huh, you drive a lot faster Depending on what songs on the radio, huh? <laughs> I was and like, "Do I you said, have?" Yeah, I, I guess. Yeah. So then I switched it to a ballad, "Sweet Child of Mine." <laughs> Sweet Child of Mine. Oh, you needed to go yeah, slower, Will. <laughs> the other thing I thought was cool among these many images that are flashed at the end of this trailer is that, uh, like we just m- mentioned a moment ago, Terry Silver is back, and Terry Silver has gone silver. So we just see an image of the ponytail yeah. being tightened up, but now the hair. His uh, trademark uh, ponytail is now gray. Has gone fully gray, it seems. Um, mm-hmm. I mentioned this to you guys before, I think, before. It's, it's curious that the way the story is, even going back to Karate Kid 3, when Terry Silver was first introduced, they, Crease uh, and Silver were in Vietnam together. Now, mm-hmm. but Martin Cove is 16 years older than Thomas Ian Griffith, and Thomas Ian Griffith was, would have been all of like six years old when the war started. <laughs> so it's kind of funny. And I think it's probably going to be a little more obvious even now that they're both older to make them. Cause mm-hmm. even back then they seemed a little like mismatched as far as age, but now it's probably going to be more evident. Yeah. Mm. But with the silver hair. Yeah. Martin Cove don't look that old. No, but I just imagine he probably looks I, I th- older yeah, than Thomas I, I, th- I think you pull it off. Yeah. All right. Cove's yeah. aged pretty well. So yeah, no, yeah, absolutely. All I'm right. willing to yep. suspend reality. There you <laughs> cool. go. All right, whatever. Sure. I'll go, I'll go screw myself. All right, whatever. Don't yeah. agree with me. Yeah, exactly. Sure, I'm not saying it won't be noticeable. Fine. I'm, I'm going to find that boyfriend. Yeah. All right, hey. <laughs> and that was 1980s news. 
Hey, if you like the show. And you do. Look at the snake dance. Look at the snake dance Ray is doing. You like the show. <laughs> hey, just uh, new this week, we have launched our Patreon. So you can find us on Patreon now as 1980s now. You can go to patreon.com slash 1980s now. What is that? I don't know. We're just learning about it now. But it, has actu- it is actually a way for you to support. Now, this is the one that costs money. You don't want to spend any money. Mm. Share a post. Follow us on Facebook. All right. Tell a friend. Seriously, no. do that. No. But no. Oops. It's, it's three dollars. <laughs> Come on. But for as low as three dollars <laughs> per month, you get some perks. And there's three different tiers and you can get a range of things from, you know, uh, being a part of our private uh, chat groups, private uh, live streams, extra bonus content that we don't publish, some of it which we have sworn to one another would never air. No one would ever hear it. But we're going <laughs> to make it I never agreed to that. All right. Maybe I just did. <laughs> But we're going to make it available to you, <laughs> the, the, the patron. Maybe um, that's what I should do yeah. for the mm. highest level patrons. Maybe oh. I'll swear. Oh, she'll swear. <laughs> <laughs> hey, Cat. that's perfect. <laughs> I will we will set a higher level, like $100. <laughs> oh, yeah, 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 yeah. There you go. What? $100? <laughs> that's a flat $100. I swear, I swear for free. Come on. <laughs> we're going to get you not to swear for, for $100. Well, you know what? They want yeah. bonus yeah, that's what they want. Yeah, and it'll and it's and it'll be there for you. Okay, hey, in a moment we'll be joined with our guest today, legendary fantasy author R. A. Salvatore. guest today has sold more than 30 million copies of his world-renowned books, at least 22 of which have appeared on the New York Times bestseller lists. Our guest's first novel, The Crystal Shard, which was published in 1988, became the first volume of the acclaimed Ice Wind Dale trilogy. It introduced the popular character Drist Duarden. Since that time, our guest has published numerous novels for each of his signature multi-volume series, including the Dark Elf Trilogy, Paths of Darkness, the Hunter's Blades Trilogy, and the Cleric Quintet. Starlight Enclave, our guest's newly published novel, continues the story of Drist that began in our favorite decade. It's available everywhere books are sold. Please welcome to the show, R.A. Salvatore. Hello there. Now, and I, I know folks, you know, refer to you as Bob. I don't feel like we can refer to you as Bob. I feel like more a more appropriate title might be Ra. Yeah, don't do that. Okay, don't do that. <laughs> okay. I think in the very least we can concede your name is very musical, R.A. Salvatore. In fact, our house band came up with a little intro for you. I'll play for you. You should have got Ozzy. <laughs> That's awesome. He's too expensive. Turns yeah, out. I'll bet. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you could. He you could just afterwards. You could just tell him we already paid you. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. So we appreciate your time today. Uh, of course, we're big fans of yours. And 
uh, as we were talking a little bit before, you happen to be a 70s kid, but we're, we, Ray and I were 70s, 80s kids, I suppose. But um, of course, we became of your work first during the 1980s, which is the decade that we most appreciate and value. And so, and in no small part to the work that you were doing uh, during that decade. It's been well chronicled that, however, you started out as a math student and, and made the switch. And I know you've told the story before that Lord of the Rings is really what, you know, sort of, you know, how do you change your mind? But I think back to when I was a college kid, I had no idea what I wanted to do. No, no amount of books that I was going to read was going to make a clear path for me. How was it that for you? You had such clarity. Well, it wasn't that I had clarity. It's yeah. that I was confident in my abilities in math and science. I see. And it was really, I was going to college because I wanted to get a decent job. Yeah. I was the youngest of seven. Yeah. Um, my parents, I, I was taking care of my parents when I was in college. I see. Um, they were older. Um, I was driving my mom around. My dad had stopped driving pretty much. And, um, you know, I'd get up in the morning at 530 in the morning and I'd go to my job at the plastics factory, start up the extruders and get mm. the plastic running and then uh, go back home, grab a shower, go to school, come home from school, go to the nightclub and um, in the afternoons, clean the place, vacuum the floors, get it ready for the night, stock right. the bars, go back home, eat. Go back to the nightclub, work as a bouncer till one in the morning. And, um, and you know, was, by the way, back then, that was nothing special. That's what all the people from my area were doing. We were mm. trying to get college college educations and we had to pay for them. Yeah. And so, you know, one thing my wife and I decided early on, because she went through the same thing. She was from mm. a very poor family. Her dad got killed in the military and she was living on base housing. Wow. Um, but their mom didn't even speak English when she brought the kids over here. And, um, we decided early on that we were going to push our kids to take some really crappy jobs in high school. Yeah. So they'd want to mm. go and do more. Mm. And I guess that, that, see, that's the difference right there between the eighties and nineties. And now is that now you can push your kids to do that and they can go to college and they're still going to have to do the crappy jobs. Yeah. Oh yeah. <laughs> and multiple. Yeah. Of them. Sure. If you can get them out of the house. <laughs> Good luck with that. Yeah. Yeah. So anyway, I decided math and science because I figured I'd get a job. Yeah. And a good one. I was pretty good in math. In fact, I was very good in math. Um, I also think that helps with the writing because it's the way my brain compart compartmentalizes, organized, and makes logical yeah. conclusions. I think that works in a novel. In fact, my favorite, one of my favorite um, English professors, when I switched over later on, uh, had scored an 800 on his math SATs. Wow. Hmm. And I don't think that's uncommon hmm. or, or, you know, having high scores for people right. who go into writing in math. I don't think that's that uncommon. Um, but anyway, so yeah, I, I was a math science major um, mainly because element, not so much elementary school, but junior high and high school had beat the love hmm. of reading right hmm. out of me. Hmm. Yes. Did So when you talk about the math, um, so did you have an interest in, in writing or creative writing before you sort, sought a more practical career? No. I, before I went to college, the only books I read were the books I had to read to get mm. the grade. And the only writing I did was the writing I had to do to get the grade. Right. When I was very young, I loved to read. I used to, yeah. my, I had a deal with my mom. She'd let me bag school all I wanted if I mm. would, if I would um, make, get straight A's. Wow. I had to get straight A's. This is elementary school, but she'd yeah. let me stay home and read my Charlie Brown books. And that, oh. that was awesome. So I'd be, you know, I'd be home reading my comics. 
uh, my Charlie Brown books. And so I'd stay home and, and read. I loved reading. I loved going on adventures. But then, like I said, you know, by the time I got to junior high, they were giving me books like Silas Minor and Ethan Fromm and, mm. and Moby Dick. And Moby Dick, you take out 70 chapters, it's a hell of a short story, but oh yeah. my God. <laughs> and I kept looking at these books and saying, why are they giving me this to read? This, this doesn't do anything for me. This doesn't yeah. make me this doesn't interest me. Nothing in these books that remotely interests me. And I did have a couple of classes. I had a science fiction class where I wrote a story that actually became my first book, Echoes of the Fourth Magic, the book mm. that got me the audition with TSR right. later on. And I wrote one thing in a, I did, I took a creative writing class and I wrote one thing, and I remember when I was reading it in the class, the teacher was crying, and not because it was that bad, which was a good thing, right? Um, and it was, um, and I was thinking, wow, this is pretty cool. But I put it all on the back burner, and I needed to go. To, I was going to college to get a job. I was going to a local college right near my house because I was kind of taking care of my parents, uh, my aging parents, and and I just needed to get the degree to get the job. Um, and that all changed after I read Tolkien. And then I realized, wait a minute. Wow. So it really is that, I don't want to see that simple, but uh, you know, it's, it's, it's remarkable. A lot of folks, you know, have some sort of aptitude or interest. It seems before they have that sort of, you know, uh, epiphany, but you know, it's again, it seems like you were on one point, a track and, uh, Tolkien was power enough, falling off to have that shift. And, you know, even after, even after, I mean, when I, I, I fell in love with fantasy, because it was that Peter Beagle introduction. Peter S. Beagle did the introduction to the Ballantine edition of those books. And he talked about escapism isn't a bad word. And he talked about how we're honoring all the wrong people sometimes mm. instead of instead of the people that expand our minds and our and our hopes and our dreams. And that introduction blew me away, that the forward to the Hobbit. But then when I read The Hobbit, I read, it was like being a little kid again in my mom's house. And it was it was going away on this adventure. And I was like, wow. So I fell in love with fantasy. So I read everything fantasy that was out there pretty much that I could get my hands on. And that meant, you know, Terry Brooks was just coming out with his Shannara books back then. Then Stephen Donaldson followed with the Thomas Covenant books. And and um, Ian McCaffrey had a couple of books out, I think. Fritz Leiber with Fatford and Gray Mouser. Um, another book that wasn't really fantasy science fiction that kind of blew me away when I was working at the plastics factory. I remember I was working in the back room and there was no heat. It was a new England winter and it was about 10 degrees in that room. And, but the, so I'd stand right near the hot water, you know, the hot water from the extruder because extruder, the plastic melts, it comes out, you pull it through this right. tray of water and then through all the thing, all the piping and the fans that dry it before it goes and gets pelletized. Right. So I'm standing next to this tree and I found this book that they had, they, there was a bunch of old books back there and it was uh, Canical for Leibowitz mm. by Walter Miller, which is just phenomenal. But, but that was my, that was my salvation when I was working at the factory or my jobs were so mindless that I could read books. And I, so I read fantasy books and I read every fantasy book I get my hands on, which took me about a year, not even. And I'm a slow reader and I was doing a lot of other things because there just weren't that many. Mm-hmm. And there was no internet. You couldn't just go order them, right. yeah. you know, whatever my local bookstore had, my local bookstore had, and their bay was one bay science fiction fantasy. And there was more science fiction and I didn't, I wasn't as into science fiction as fantasy. I wanted escapism at that time, but I wasn't planning to be a writer. Mm. I only started, I only wrote a book for two reasons. One, I ran out of books to read and two, <laughs> I wanted something. I was thinking someday, you know, my wife, 
whoever that may be, will give this to my kids. If we have kids who will give it to my grandkids and say, Hey, you want to learn about your grandfather? Right. Well, that's <laughs> the only reason I wrote it. I, I didn't even type it. I didn't know how to type. Right. I just wrote it longhand in a spiral notebook to Fleetwood Mac's Tusk album <laughs> <laughs> with candles burning after I would mm. get home from working in the nightclubs. Probably why I did so many fight scenes. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And regarding that, I mean, when you say that, I mean, I'm sure you, you joke, I'm partially sure, certainly, and I've seen you talk about it before, but really, I mean, I mean, you're thinking about that, some of the tussles you got into and some of the characters you've seen in that job made their way into some of your stories? No. No, not at all. Okay. <laughs> no one would believe that. No. Because <laughs> <laughs> I, was, I was a really good bouncer because I talked my way out of most fights. I yeah. didn't want to go to the hospital. Oh, sure. Yeah. Um, and you know, most of those guys were really just drunk anyway. So it was basically more of saying, Hey, what's over there? And when they looked at that, but no, no. Uh, but I've always, I've always been interested in, in athletics and in sports. And I watched, you know, I grew up watching Ali Frazier, Ali Foreman. Yeah. Um, and we had a boxing club when I was in high school, some friends and I used to go down and my friend's cellar where they, we had built, they had built a ring. I joined later <laughs> and we would just beat the tire out of each other. Oh yeah. Good times. Mm. Um, who needs beer? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'll just, I'll make you dizzy with my fist. Right. Mm-hmm. It was, uh, it was kind of crazy actually. Um, but, uh, you know, I, I just love watching sports and I yeah. love the movement of the human body. And it, to me, it's poetry. I mean, my favorite, my, the thing I, I watch all the time when I can find any, any good cuts of it is uh, Torval and Dean dancing the bolero in the Olympics. Mm. Another 80s thing. Yeah. But to me, that was pure art and sport combined. So, mm. you know, I, I, and my, one of my frustrations with all the fantasy books I was reading is nobody was describing the fights. Mm. Not in any detail. You made your comment uh, that you had written initially your first book by hand. Now, is that mm-hmm. just a matter of uh, lack of uh, typewriter. I'm trying to think at the era. We had there were yeah. computers certainly, but is that was that what it yeah. was? It just amounted to that. Well, yeah. When I was in high school, and this was '70s, not '80s. Sorry, yeah. um, but um, you had two tracks in high school. You were college or business. Yeah. Um, my sisters, who were brilliant, were put in the business track. Most of them, because they were women, and they mm. couldn't dare go to college and succeed. Right. They all did. And they, <laughs> and most of them succeeded, but not Good. to the levels they should have if it had been a different world. Yeah. One was the salutatorian of the class. The other was the valedictorian of the class. Mm-hmm. And the other three were all just as smart. It's incredible. But um, if you were in the college co- course, which I was, they didn't teach you how to type. Mm. So I had no idea how to type. I didn't have a typewriter. Right. <laughs> but I knew how to write in little blue books or spiral yeah. notebooks right. because I went to college. I had to hire my sister to type my first book. Yeah, you, you know uh the Hobbit was written by hand also. Well, sure. So uh, I thought maybe the fact that you wrote it by hand was just to say, well, if he can do it that way, then I can do it that way. No, but I thought you were supposed to do it that way. Like I said, I would come home at one in the morning and I'd burn some candles in my bedroom and I had the music playing and I was writing it by hand. And after six months, when I finished the first draft, my hand was clawed. My (laughs) eyes were full of smoke and I had a headache that wouldn't go away for about three weeks. But, um, 
No, it was it was not an homage. It was it was a lack of a typewriter and not knowing how to use one if I had one. So and and uh, we know that the, as far as the history, it actually didn't come out though that book until later after you had some other books published. Right, that book is. I wrote that book and I got. I wasn't even planning. I, I wasn't writing it to get published, like I said. Yeah. But I had my sister type it up and I just gave it to some friends to read. And they were all like, this is really good. You should get this published. I'm like, hmm. you can't do that. You know, how do you do that? <laughs> right. But I sent it out. You know, I, I, I made, I went and paid and it was not cheap. And it was, it took me hours because it was one paper at a time to copy it on the copy. It was open it up, put oh, the page wow. in, put it down, make right. a copy. I had to do that like 10 times uh, to make 10 copies of 400 pages or whatever. Right. So wow. it was, it was days of work. And it wasn't cheap because it was like, I think we're like five cents a copy yeah, or 10 yeah. cents a copy. In 1983, yeah. that was a lot of money oh, yeah. for someone who was, you know, just out of college. I was just out of college then, but I was still working as a bouncer. So that was a lot of money. Um, but anyway, I made the copies and I said, I'll send it out. So I went and got the writer's market and found some places to send it and sent it to the major publishers in New York. And I got some of the worst rejection letters you can imagine. <laughs> Um, one of them said, uh, dear Leonard, <laughs> and they were horrible. And, you know, I, but I, that just got me mad. So I just kept working part-time whenever I could find time to write, I would write. Cause now I was mad. Then I wound up getting a PC junior. I got married the yeah. following year, had a kid soon after another kid that come, came right along, but I just kept working in my spare time. When the kids were in bed, my wife was working night shift or I was working night shift. I'd find my time to, to, to type and just, just try to make it better yep. because now I was mad because someone told me <laughs> you can't. And I don't like being told that. This sounds like a very yeah. East coast response to something, you know? Oh, heck yeah. Oh, yeah. I'm, mm -hmm. I'm from Jersey city, New Jersey originally. So I can, then you know, I can really, yes, of course. But one of the other things that happened, yep. I actually told the story last night. It's, it's, it's kind of funny because there was one point where I was about ready to say, all right, I've got two kids now. I've got to focus on my work. I was working at a high tech company in finance. And I, I, inventory control at that time, but I was moving up pretty fast. And I said, you know, what? I got I got to put this pipe dream away. I got a family to help support here. My wife and I are working hard, uh, dirt poor, but working hard and determined to to build a good life for us and our kids. And um, unbeknownst to me, my sister stole one of the manuscripts and gave it to a friend of hers hmm. who was living in New York City and working as a nanny for Mark Hamill. No, kidding. how funny is that? Right. Wow. Yeah. And she, so she asked Mark Hamill about it and he gave her the name of an agent that he knew, uh, a, a woman named Lulu Baskins who worked for the Peter Miller agency. I didn't know any of this. Oh, okay. And then I got this phone call from Lulu Baskins mm -hmm. and she said, look, you're not going to publish this book. And I can tell you why. Here are the problems. Wow. And she said, and I, you know, we can't represent you or anything, but I don't want you to quit because wow. I know there's some talent here. So generous. And she stayed on the phone with me unsolicited for like an hour and just gave me a pep talk and, and, and explained to me some of the things that were missing from the book. Right. And, and I listened, I paid attention, hmm. but mostly it just gave me hope again. Yeah. So I went right back to work, kept working on it until January of 87. And I said, you know, I, I think that uh, this might be good. This, this might be good enough to publish now. So I went back and got my writer's market from the library. Right. You could only get them in the library at that time. You know, I went to the library. You couldn't even take them out. You had to 
do it there. Do, and I put down all the publishers and one of the publishers that was accepting unsolicited manuscripts was TSR. Wow. And I knew them from the Dragonlance books and I was playing Dungeons and Dragons. Mm-hmm. So I said, Hey, I'll send this book out. And I sent it to a bunch of them. Then I forgot about it. I went back by this, by this time I was working, you know, long hours away from home. And, um, I came home one night and my wife said, a woman from named Mary Kirchhoff called. And I said, okay. Um, and she said, yeah, she said she's an editor from TSR and she wanted to talk to you. And so my first thought was, did she ask for Leonard? What? Really? <laughs> and, and so I called her, she left the number. I got on the phone. This is when we were still hitched to walls with the phone. Remember? Yeah. Mm-hmm. And I called back because they were an hour behind. So she was still at work apparently. And I remember my wife had the kids and we had two little kids then. And, and my dog was barking and, and Diane's like, the dog has to go out. Now, the dog's name was Puddles. You have to understand this to appreciate the story. <laughs> and the dog has to go out. Let the dog go, I can't. This is busy. So I get on the phone with Mary Kirchhoff and who's, who's talking to me, wants to talk to me about my book and my dog pees on my foot. <laughs> <laughs> But I just, nothing happened. She oh, just yeah. wasn't a video call. She, she had no idea. And um, sure as heck, she asked me if I could take, she really, she really liked what I was trying to do in this book. And she wondered if I could put it, set it in the Forgotten Realms. And I said, mm. what are the Forgotten Realms? Yeah. They weren't out yet. And there was no internet. I had no idea right. what these were. And we talked about it a little bit and realized I couldn't set the book there because my book started on our world. The Forgotten Realms is a completely separate world. Mm. My book started here and went to the future. And so she asked me to audition hmm. and I, I did the audition and I got the call on July 11th. I remember the day, 1987. And she said, I have good news and bad news. Uh, the good news is we've accepted your book. You're going to be the second Forgotten Realms novelist. Wow. You know, we accepted your outline. And the bad news is I need the first draft October 1st. <laughs> <laughs> and I've got a three-year-old, a two-year-old. Yeah. My wife is seven months pregnant. I've got to change cars because you can't put three car seats in the back of a Mustang GT. I've got to get a new apartment because it's just too small for three kids. And I'm working eight, eight hours a day, eight and a half hours a day, counting lunch an hour from home. So I said, no problem. Mm. <laughs> and I wrote the crystal shard. Yeah, no, I can do that. When you want something, you've been chasing yeah. it that long. When you get the opportunity, you don't say no. What is the process? Do they have a Bible of sorts at that point for the for- Forgotten Realms to give you to? Oh, the process then was very different than what happened later because at that time they had nothing. Mm. In fact, they sent me, only thing they sent me, the only printed thing, they, piece of work they had was Doug Niles' book, Dark Walker and Moonshay. Mm. And if you look in the original editions of Dark Walker and Moonshay, all of this is a map of these little islands, the Moonshay Isles, right? Mm. That's it. And Doug's characters dominate. So I thought they were trying to do Dragonlance mm. again, where, you know, authors run with the same characters. I didn't really want to do that. So I used one of, in the outline, I had to do an outline, I had to do a short story. So for, what was the name of The Tyrant of Icewind Dale mm. was the, my original title for the book, I used Doug's character, Dareth the Callumshite, to introduce my character, my hero, Wolfgar, who was going to be the hero of the books. And I sent it in. Mary's like, well, no, we don't want you on the Moonshay Isles. And I'm looking at the map and all you see these little islands. Do you want me in the water? What is this? <laughs> and I said, oh, we didn't send you Ed Greenwood's original oh. maps. <laughs> and I'm at work. And I had them just mail it to my, to my work because it was easier. And I get this box with like a stack of eight and a half by 11 pay, papers, 
no numbers on them, no keys. Some of them have like a line with a mountain and a tree. And I have no idea how to put these things together. And I remember I went to one day, my boss, who was the control controller for this, you know, 20, $30 million service department for Genrad knocks on my office door and he's like, come on, we're going to lunch with Dale, the big boss and Nino, the head of service. I'm like, oh, I can't, I got too much work to do. As soon as I left, I took off my tie. I tied it around my head like a bandana. I pushed all my furniture to the side and I'm on the floor trying to figure out these maps. And I must, I lost track of time and now I hear over my shoulder, what are you doing? And I turn around and it's Dale, Nino and Rick, my boss. And I'm like, oops. And they came in and helped me. Right. <laughs> it was oh, awesome. But that's that. And, and then it, after when they had the realms map sorted out talking with Mary, it still took us two weeks, almost daily phone calls to find a place where I could set the books mm. because I'd say, how about here? And oh, that's Callum Shannon. And Doug's doing more work down there. So we given the whole word to Doug. Who's Doug? You know? <laughs> yeah. And it's like, oh, how about here? That's Cormier. And that's for Ed Greenwood. This is his world. And we're giving him Cormier. And I'm like, well, how about over here? The Bloodstone Lands. And I, Doug just did some modules there. I'm like, wait a minute. And we're going on and on and on and on and on. And finally, I said, you see that little strip of land above the spine of the world mountains there in the, in the Northwest? And she goes, I think that's a typo. And I said, I don't care. Can I have it? She said, sure. I said, that's Icewind Dale. Leave me alone. And that was it. That's how we did it. And, and that was the realms back then, because if you look at the original realms, it had all these big cities and few things and all these nice tidbits, but it was mostly just wide open. And that was the beauty of the realms. That's why it works so well for D&D and why so many authors wanted to jump in on the realms, because they could make their own way. Right, right. So I got to create Icewind Dale from a little typo north of the Spine of the World Mountains by the Sea of Moving Ice. And so many of your character names and places seem like anagrams, and I've tried to crack them, you know, by putting them in different anagram solvers, and I can't crack anything. Good luck. But I could, maybe you had like, if it was like typo, it was an anagram for some of your, one of the places, but no. Okay. I used to say I came up with names by closing my eyes, hitting the keys and hoping enough vowels popped up, but that's not true. <laughs> um, no, what I tried to do with the drow is I tried to use elements of the elven mm. languages and the dwarven languages because it made sense to me. If right. they were un that's mm. just made logical sense to me. So there was actually method to my madness. And and then some of the other names just sounded right, you know. And I mean, it, Tolkien started all this. He was a linguist after all. Mm. Um, but you know, like Bruner Battlehammer—that sounds like a dwarf, yeah, right? Does. And of course, Wolfgar is is that is a real name. It's an action. You know, if you mm. look back in history, you'll find Wolfgars here and there. Mm -hmm. And no, Caddy Bree yeah. was not named after Kathy Lee. And, and, <laughs> no. That uh, that I do have a question about one of the names of the characters. It's not a big character, but it's Dagna, the general that helped uh, Bruno take over uh, his homeland. <laughs> did you in intentionally Dagnab it? Is did that you, the best dwarf name ever? Did you have that planned, or did you just one day look at it when you? Oh no, that was the way the I burned my editor. <laughs> no, seriously, I, I really did. I went after my editor with Dagna because oh. here's what happened when I was trying to when I was finishing the Halfling's Gem. Uh, TSR, I keep saying wizards, but it was TSR said, no, 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 no. We're, we think people are dumb with these characters. This is 1989, right? <laughs> so, you know, tie it all up in the epilogue. Do the epilogue when they get Mithril Hall back. Because I was planning a fourth book that was going to be them retaking Mithril Hall. So I had to come up with somebody 
off the top of my head, this was very late in the game. I remember back then, like they, I started that book in July of 1987, the first one, The Crystal Shard. They needed it by October. That book was in the stores in February of the next year. And this was kind of the schedule we were on working with TSR. So all of a sudden, I got to finish this book, The Halfling's Gem, and I've got to recapture Mithra Hall. So I, the, the companions weren't even there. Um, they were in Callumport sailing back. And I didn't want to like abbreviate the trip so they could be there. So I had to come up with a dwarf to lead the, the fight. Mm. And I came up with what I was convinced was the greatest dwarf name in history, Dagnabbit. <laughs> and so General Dagnabbit led the attack on Mithril Hall and reclaimed Mithril Hall. <laughs> well, apparently some people at TSR took things really seriously about their game. <laughs> and they gave my editor a ration of crap for that. <laughs> and my editor was really mad at me. <laughs> so he said... You know, he calls me, he's like, Dagnabbit, really? I go, yeah, isn't that the best dwarf name? How, dare you? How could you do that? And because he was taking all kinds of crap. And so I got mad because he said, you know, going forward, if, we, if this character comes back, we're, we're making it Dagna. Hmm. I can't fix it now. I don't know how I missed it, but it's going to be Dagna. And I said, no way. And he said, yeah, that's that's the rule. Sorry. Deal with it. I said, okay, fine. <laughs> so now I'm writing the Dark Elf trilogy and Dagna's not in it because this is prequel. And then I'm writing the cleric books. And so I'm like, hmm, okay. You know, I, I'm, a, I'm an Italian kid from Massachusetts. And like I said, you know, if you tell me no, <laughs> I don't like it. So I had to come up with a couple of brothers, dwarven brothers, the boulder shoulder brothers, Ivan. And I came up with a name P-I-K-E-L, Pickle. So I send the book in and I'm waiting by the phone. Now, this is, again, there's no email. So, but I just knew he was going to call. And I get a phone call from Eric. Poor Eric. I think I drove him. He became a Unitarian minister. I think I drove him to it. And <laughs> poor God. Eric calls. I love Eric. He's like the best person on the planet. He really didn't deserve what I did to him. But he calls me up and he says, Pickle. <laughs> and I said, Cucumber. He said, Bob Pickle. I said, tomato. He's like, Bob. I'm like, well, what are you talking about? Is this a garden show or what? He says, you're dwarf, pickle. And I said, pickle? No, it's not pickle. It's like the weapon, pike all. Oh, all right, never mind. The dwarf has green hair for crying out loud. He's a pickle. <laughs> but I got him. But then that I wasn't satisfied with just getting him like that. So... What I did in the later books, after Eric had left the company and became a minister, he really did. Um, but he was still working with the company here and there. I came up with Dagna being the father of Dagnabbit. And then just to make it, more, just to twist the knife a little more recently, when Bruner left Mithril Hall, he gave it to Queen Dagnabet. <laughs> <laughs> I have a long memory. Yeah. <laughs> I think it's, it's, you know, it's interesting to me, Ray and I were talking about this, like, you know, before we think we've heard interviews with you and, and now more, we're learning how to pronounce some of these places. But for that, you know, there's among friends, there's a debate. Is it Drizzt? Is it Drizzt? Is it Drizzt? I love that fight. You know? I mean, it's just. <laughs> no, I love that fight. You know? oh. I always have this image of these two kids in a high school hallway. It's Drizzt. It's Drizzt. It's Drizzt. It's Drizzt. Yeah. Third kid walks up, says, what the hell are you talking about? Yeah. Said, Didn't you ever read this? And I win. <laughs> it, 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 it's pure marketing. marketing. Yeah, marketing ploy. Yeah. 
So it's, it's funny that they would say to you in, you know, 1989, people are going to be dumb with these things. I mean, could you ever have imagined 30 years ago, you'd still be writing these stories? You when I wrote the first book, I thought I was writing one book. Yeah. <laughs> and then I was ready to go. And I mean, they paid me a couple of grand and a tiny little royalty on it. I, mm-hmm. I didn't think I was going to make any money on it. Yeah. Um, but for me, a couple of grand was a lot of money back then. I was sure. still in middle management and, you know, but I figured I'd write this one book. It'll go out there. And I can say I did it. Yeah. And now I'll focus on my job. And because I was doing very well at my work, I, I work hard. I put I have pride in what I do. And, and I'm good at math. So I was good in finance. <laughs> yeah. And I was having fun. And then the book came out and it did really well. It got to be like uh, number one on the Walden's list or number three mm-hmm. on the Walden's list or something, the Crystal Shard. And they said, hey, we want another book. Like, I kind of like doing that. Let's do that again. So I did it again. They didn't pay me much more. So I thought it was just, this, you know, a two off. And then the second book came out and went to number one on the Walden's list, the B. Dalton list. And it was doing really, really well. And the Forgotten Realms novels, they were all flying at that point. But these two books were doing really well. We were getting reviews that were good reviews. I was getting fan mail. Letters would show up from the publisher in the little bag from my house. And I'm like, holy crap, this is like kind of cool. But I still thought I was done. But then they made a big mistake. They started advertising the third book before they contracted me to write it. Oh. Mm. So I got more higher royalties and a bigger advance. And then that book came out in February of 90 and the Halfling's Gem. And that one hit the New York Times. And that was a big deal back then. It's not that big a deal anymore, like in terms of real selling power. But back then you made the New York Times and that was a big deal because now you're in all the Kmart readers markets and all the, all the uh, grocery stores and all these, you know, the pharmacies, your, your point of sales quadruple. Hmm. And, you know, all of a sudden I've got a check in my pocket that's more than my annual salary yeah. <laughs> because there was no advance, but the book sold like hundreds of thousands of copies. And I'm like, holy crap, this is what is going on here. And then in, in, in my my company was changing. There was a lot of strife going on. The person who had been my friend became my boss and we got into these rip roaring fights and, you know, I was just burning out all of a sudden what had been a good job was turning into a horror show for all of us. And T.S. and Mary called me up and she said, Bob, you know what? We want three more books and we think it's that you might want to think about quitting and going full time. And I did June, 1990, I walked out of that building for the last time and I was terrified. I had, th- I had three little kids, I had a three-year-old, a five-year-old and a six-year-old. And I'm like, no insurance. Yeah. Right. And I'm like, now it didn't cost you a million dollars a month for insurance yeah, back then, sure. but still it was terrifying, yeah. but I did it. But you always had math to fall back on, just in case. You know, oh, that's not how it worked. Oh, okay, no. <laughs> <laughs> that's not how it worked at all. <laughs> so, you, you know, you mentioned you were a gamer even before you were a, a fantasy author. So what is it like to ultimately see these, you know, these interests of yours, you know, merge, where you now see worlds you've created, characters you've created, turned into games? It is incredibly surreal. Mm. It, 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 it's almost like I'm watching... I'm following someone else's career because mm. that doesn't really translate to my daily life. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. You know, I still live in the town mm. where I was born, uh, play softball with a bunch of guys that n- know me from softball, yep. coach a bunch of kids in hockey and 
basketball and softball or whatever, you know, these are just, I'm just Bobby around here. And, and that's the way I like it. Um, so it's kind of surreal. I mean, you know, I go to Gen Con and Gary Gygax wants to meet me. It's like, wow. (laughs) What? (laughs) You know, I was up at wizards a couple few years ago and this is still goes on to this day where I just can't believe it. And I don't really understand it. And I don't really care. It's been a hell of a journey and and a lot of fun. I was up at wizards of the coast for a meeting a few years ago. And I got introduced to Pat Rothfuss and I'm like, whoa, I'm meeting Pat Rothfuss and he's sweating and he's like, I can't believe I'm meeting you. And I'm wow. like, really? <laughs> Me? And then I go to a convention and Pat's there and, <laughs> and Mike Cole is doing a panel and Mike, I heard he wanted to meet me. So I went up to talk to him and he looks at me and he pulls up uh, Jim Butcher and Pat Rothfuss and Kevin Hearn and Chuck Wendig and Delilah wow. uh, Dawson. And they're like, did you guys grow up reading Bob's books? And they're like, yeah. <laughs> he's like, look at him. He looks like he's our age. And I'm like, <laughs> they grew up reading my books. That's, <laughs> how can that be? Mm. Yeah. You see what I mean? It, so yeah. it doesn't, it doesn't really compute to me. It's kind of fun though. Yes. <laughs> So this is no surprise to you. You know this already. It is the it is the summer of uh, I'm gonna say drizzt, 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 or drizzt. I don't care. Yeah. Um, <laughs> um, as you know, uh, Wizards just a couple of months ago announced a number of different things, including you know, in connection with the the world, the characters you created, and teased the possibility of a TV show that may actually be set possibly in the Underdark. Maybe uh, drizzt is even the lead character. Oh, he's just gone all stone face on us. We don't know. Okay. All right. Okay. I, That's fine. <laughs> I, no, no, no. I, I, I've heard the movie is, is moving along. Yeah. Um, I've seen some of the reports. I Most of what I know I got online about the movie. I'm yeah. not involved in that in any way. Yeah. Um, and the last I heard is um, they were actually beginning to shoot, but I'm not, mm. I, I didn't hear it from Wizards, so I don't know if it's true. Yeah. They're very tight-lipped about that stuff. Um, they, they've talked about the TV show. Um, and I know that every time they go out with anything to do with my characters, they ask for me to be involved. Mm. But that that doesn't mean a studio is going to do that. It's a very strange place out mm. there. Mm. You know, it's like, and really the control I have over something like that is just much. It's, so, it's um, you know, I just, I just stay in my lane. But um, I have heard that they, they, I know there's been some interest yep. to do a TV show. I mean, I, how could they not yeah, be there's a built-in with audience. everything else that's going on out there and yeah. working. And here we have these books that have been running for 30 plus years. And, you know, we're still hitting the New York times. We're still selling tons of copies. I mean, the crystal yeah. shard is still so selling fun. like crazy. Mm-hmm. Um, so I don't know. I don't know. I hope it happens. It's, mind, you know? it's 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 mind blowing to me, and I've heard this story before from some other uh, you know artists and authors that how <laughs> these corporations will own a brand or get the license to do something, and they don't involve the creators, and so we, the fans wind up getting a product that's disconnected from you know what they're familiar with, and it, it doesn't do as well, and there's a lot of disappointment. Well, I think there's a realization, and I, I think there's some truth to it. Okay, I'm not gonna that the, it's a different skill to write a screenplay than it is to sure. write a novel. But I'd also argue that one of the reasons why, um, I don't want to say they fail, but why so many shows are lacking or movies are lacking. And I'm I'm not trying to be 
this isn't a brag or a humble brag or anything, but yeah. I think that when you, when you're a novelist, you learn certain things about storytelling mm-hmm. that I, I think are being replaced by special effects. Mm, right. That makes yep. sense yes. in terms of the production uh, yeah. values. Right. And I think there's a reason why Game of Thrones was the biggest show on television for so many years. And that's because George Martin was working with them. Mm. Yeah. Um, yeah. So, yeah, I mean, you know, I, I'd love, I'd love to be a part of it, but who yeah. knows? Yeah. The Drift series is, you know, many, 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 many books, but the Spear Wielder and the Crimson Shadow only got trilogies. Yeah. When are we going back to those? I'm doing Demon Wars. <laughs> I, I love Demon Wars too. I mean, I've got, I've got he's busy. 14 books of Demon nah. Wars and I just started the 15th. I know, but, but the character of Gary, I think is actually you. <laughs> nice call. <laughs> my brother's name was Gary yeah. and Ledger is my other family name. Okay. So yeah, Gary Ledger worked at the plastics factory, could hit a softball a mile, mm-hmm. went down the woods and get kidnapped by a leprechaun. I used to go sit down and read and I got kidnapped by a hobbit, which is why Gary took the book, the Hobbit with him mm-hmm. when he went to the land of fairy. Um, Love those books. Those books were important to me. And the crimson shadow books, of course had Oliver and he's yes. still probably my favorite funny guy ever. Um, I always describe him as a cross between the Nagel Montoya and the little <laughs> French guy on the wall in Monty Python's Holy Grail. Uh, and yeah. the whole joy of Oliver is if somebody groans when they're reading it and then they have to look back and say, did he really say, wait a minute, what did he say? You know, that that's Oliver. Um, I had a blast writing those books. Those were, you know, I, I, I've got, I've got the echoes of the fourth magic, the NSIL trilogy, the, the witch's daughter, still one of my favorite books, the yeah, second those- book on that series and bastion of darkness echoes was that book I wrote longhand. Mm-hmm. Right. Those are excellent books too. Yeah. Uh, well, I reread Echoes. They asked me if I wanted to redo it, and I cringed in a lot of places because a lot of things I do differently now. But I think the story was pretty fun. But then I did the, the Spear Wielder's Tales, and just because that was like an analogy, it was like it was like a a metaphor for my life, mm. you know. And and did the whole going to this, going away to this fantasy world. This is how I survived yeah. when I was working as a bouncer and then a plastics factory. Mm was being able to escape. It goes back to that Peter Beagle intro I told you about where escapism isn't a bad, bad word. And then the Crimson Shadow books were just, you know, um, you know I wanted to, I wanted to do something other than Forgotten Realms. I, I was doing a bunch of Forgotten Realms books at the same time I did those books, but uh, I was working with Warner and um, I just wanted to do a Three Musketeers type of <laughs> story and just this kind of rollicking. One of my favorite movies of all time is, is the Three Musketeers. Um, the old one where Cal Welch was in it. And do you remember that one? Yeah. It was, yeah uh, that was yeah. just such a great movie. Yeah. Like um, 76 or something like that. Yeah. Yeah. And that's one of my favorite movies. Yeah. So I wanted to do something like that. That just had that, that kind of swashbuckling feel to it <laughs> mm-hmm. and, and with a lot of humor. And so I did the Crimson Shadow books, but then when I had this really ugly breakup with TSR, um, you know, I thought I was going to have to sell my house. I thought mm-hmm. we just bought this, the house I'm in now. And I'm like, oh, this is going to be bad because my income was really dressed and, and, and TSR and, and all of a sudden it was over like that. And I was like, great. Um, and Diane was like, well, we'll sell the house. We'll, we'll go buy a smaller house and, you know, we'll be fine. I'll go back to work. We'll be fine. Um, but then Del Rey called me 
and Terry Brooks, I think, engineered it. And the other mm-hmm. one law called me and the one said, look, we hear you, we hear you got some time. You want to come over and spend as much time as you need to write the best book you can write. And that's when Demon Wars came to be. Wow. Yeah, the Crimson probably. Shadow books were supposed to be Demon Wars, but I didn't yeah. have time to develop the world. So I, I kind of cut them down and made it more of like a, just, just like a little swashbuckler romp. Then I got to create that whole world of Corona and do the, the seven Demon Wars books. And then I went back and did the Highwayman and then the three books following that. And then I just did the Coven, which is among the, my favorite things I've ever done. The three books of the Coven that just mm-hmm. finished a couple of years ago. That character, Alan, I just adore. And now I'm back doing another Demon Wars series um, with pirates which is a lot of fun. So that's why I haven't gone back. I haven't had time. Right, you're I've just going to have to do some fan fiction. I just, uh, I just have to wait and be patient. That's all. I've been busy. <laughs> and I threw, throw in a Tarzan yeah. novella and yeah, a Star, Star Wars, Wars book yeah. and a Star Wars no- no- novelization. Yeah. And yeah. I've been busy. There's a lot. There's a lot. There's a lot. What a journey, though. I mean, how, <laughs> how can... You know, how can I complain? Yeah. I mean, what what a fun journey I've had. You know, here I am uh, on uh, the the night of the 2000 election, yeah. right? Mm. I'm sitting in a hotel right outside of Skywalker Ranch. Oh, wow. <laughs> and I'm, oh. I've got the script in my hand for Attack of the Clones. First script. And I'm going through it. And every time I finish the scene, I looked at the TV and we had a different president. <laughs> Remember that night when Florida's for Bush, Florida's Uh, for for Bush, and and it's going back and forth (laughs) the whole night long. But the next day I had a 45 minute meeting with George Lucas Mm. and I go in to the ranch and, and all the people, all the execs come in and they start telling me, we want you to ask George about this. We want you to ask George, but I say, I got questions. I have to ask him questions about this. <laughs> yeah. And they're like, yeah, but no, we really want you. I'm like, you're going to be in the room. You ask him. Oh, we can't do that. You do it. And I'm like, <laughs> no, <laughs> I only have 45 uh, minutes. So I, I remember I get in the room and the first thing is hmm. I had seen something that I couldn't make sense of with Padme mm-hmm. uh, and the timetable. So I went in there and I go, all right, I'm confused about this though, because yeah. how can this work? And I said this, and then I said, and then this, and I hear them all gasping behind me, right? And George is like, oh yeah, that should be clearer. And we start talking and we're going back and forth. And son of a gun, if at 45 minutes, I had my watch on. Wow. It's when people wore watches instead of Fitbits. Yeah. And, and exactly 45 minutes. Like if I had an alarm, it would have, it would have dinged. His secretary walks into the room and says, oh, Mr. Lucas, uh, so-and-so is on the phone. And George is like, no, get out of here. Get out of here. <laughs> wow. Four hours later, we're downstairs oh and he's showing me cuts from the movie. It was just. I, holy cow. I wanted to like hide in the closet and just have my mail delivered there, as Mike Stackpole <laughs> used to say. It was just. And working with Lucasfilm was such a joy. It really mm. was. Sue Rostoni and Lucy Wilson and Howard, the three of them. And then I got to meet Steve Sansweet, who has like yeah. The, yeah, the, the biggest largest, collection, yeah. right? He's got right. this chicken coop in Petaluma that he turned into a museum for the Star Wars. Rancho Obi-Wan. What? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. What a blast that was. I, I, you know, I got to meet the best people. Mm. And then, you know, one day I'm sitting around my house, 2006. I'm doing an e-signing like I'm about to start here tomorrow for a new book that's coming out. And the phone rings. I'm like, I get the phone, I go, he, my wife answers, she goes, hey, it's for you. I pick it up, I go, yes, Bob. He goes, Bob, this is Kurt Schilling. 
And I said, F you. I thought it was one of my friends, right? Said, oh, no, it's, it's just so cool to talk to you. You're like wow. my favorite author. And and I want you to come. I'm starting a computer game company. I want you right. to develop this. And I'm like, I'm a Boston Red Sox fan. And this is bloody sock guy, right? Yeah. And I'm like, I can't believe I'm talking to you. And he's like, I can't believe I'm talking to you. Well, we're going to be in Kansas City. And, and we want you to come out. I'm meeting with the guys. We're going to start this company. And then I'm like, well, I'm going to Gen Con. I can swing through. And sure as hell, I wind up working with 38 studios for five years. Yeah. Um, surreal. It's just been, it's just been such a, you know, and then, and then one day I'm, I'm sitting in my room, I'm sitting in my office writing and my wife walks in and says, um, did you read this? And she reads a blog to me and it's iced tea, right? I love iced tea. I mean, both the, as from SVU, but and the you know, I really, oh, this yeah. guy's a genius, yes. right? And he's talking about, he went in to do this. He went in to read a book for Audible and a story. And he goes, this is fantasy stuff. And there's this talking swords and there's horses that fly. And he's going on and on. And I'm reading and I go, son of a bitch, that's my story. <laughs> and I, I'm like, what the hell is going on? And I call wizards and they're like, oh, crap. Because they were trying to surprise me. Oh. But Audible, as a promotion, took all of my short stories and Wizards had put them together. Was putting them together in the Legend of Dritz collect uh, the collected stories of the Legend of Dritz. But Audible had had gotten. I mean, look at the. You can look it up, but the list. It's like Melissa Roche, you know, Bernadette from Big Bang, <laughs> um, Felicia Day, Will Wheaton, Ice T, Weird Al, David Duchovny. <laughs> they gotten all these different people yeah. to read my stories in this book, and I'm like. Holy crap, Sean Astin did one. And I'm like, well, this is surreal. But that's been my life. It's just been a series of weirdness. Well, we are so grateful for the, you know, the escape you provided us in the 1980s. Hey, we loved the decade in the pop culture movies, etc. But, uh, you know, being able to journey into another land through the uh, your words on the page was uh, uh, a treat and an opportunity that uh, we certainly uh, looked forward to that and continue to this day. Thank you so much for your time tonight. Take care. Such a regular dude, right? Did you ever expect him to be so down to earth? For I all did, of- because oh, he's did? awesome. Oh, yeah. I did. Just like talking to because, a buddy. Yeah. yeah, he is my <laughs> favorite living author. So mm-hmm. yeah, this was an amazing episode for me. Yeah. Well, hey, look, and I know you had lots more questions, so we're going to have to have him come back at some point. Oh, yeah. Hey, before we go, we want to let you know that the show was brought to you with the support of people like John Henderson. Thanks, John. And you can join John Henderson by supporting our show through Patreon. John Henderson is cool. (laughs) Yeah, there you go. And we will talk to you next time on 1980s Now. That's drizzed, baby. (laughs) Later. (laughs) 